but I, you know, I think it seems so obvious that uh, you know we should be building a North American innovation corridor and making sure that uh, American and Canadian small businesses have access uh, and, and understand how to use the digital tools that they need. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome to Canusa Street, everyone. I'm Christopher Sands, your solo host, as uh, Scotty Greenwood is away. Uh, we have the opportunity today to talk to Jake Colvin, who is the president of the National Foreign Trade Council. Um, it's the leading business association dedicated solely to advancing the interest of U.S. companies in international commerce. And that includes the interest of U.S. companies doing a lot of commerce with our sometime largest trading partner, Canada. So very important in the relationship. Um, he is the co-founder of the Global Innovation Forum uh, and directed the National Foreign Trade Council's USA Engage Coalition to emphasize the benefits of U.S. economic, diplomatic, and citizen engagement in the global economy. Um, he's a cleared advisor to the U.S. government uh, and a member of the Trade and Environment Policy Advisory Committee, testifies before Congress. He's got a great media resume uh, talking foreign policy and trade with Business Week, Forbes, Politico, uh, CNBC, CNN, NBC, NPR, uh, and uh, all, all of which is impressive. But I can also say that he is an alum of Johns Hopkins SICE, which is a, uh, a school that I teach at. And so uh, I feel like I already know you, Jake. Welcome to the program. Christopher, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's, it's hard to believe, but it's my 20-year SICE reunion uh, this year. And so it's, uh, it's been a while. <laughs> yes, it has been a while. I I think we're similar in our, uh, uh, no, actually, I'm probably out 30 years now. Oh, gosh. Anyway, uh, let's not talk about that. Um, how did you get to this point? How did how did you find your way to the head of the National Foreign Trade Council? I, well, yeah, sure. So, look, I grew up in Long Island, New York, and uh, as you said, went to the University of Richmond, uh, did my undergraduate there. And came to D.C. with this kind of vague idea that I wanted to do something international. Um, and so finally, with that in mind, uh, landed as a legal assistant at a law firm, uh, Steptoe, uh, here in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, and really got to sort of see the nuts and bolts of trade law. And so worked on anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases like uh, Canadian lumber. Uh, and then uh, following that, I uh, went to went to SICE, um, the Johns Hopkins program, and, and did a master's there. Uh, and while I was there, I, I met uh, Bill Reinch, who at the time was the president of the National Foreign Trade Council uh, and a, a SICE alum who was doing a career fair. And uh, and and someone who's been a guest on this program. So uh, we'll uh, put a note to his uh, episode in the in the notes for the episode. But anyway, go ahead, sir. Terrific. Um, well, <laughs> look, so, I, you know, kept in touch with Bill and, um, you know, and that sort of really, to me, brought home the value of informational interviews um, because I did one with him and then. And then kept in touch. Uh, and at some point, an interesting job came open. And so I, I came to NFTC in 2005 uh, at a director level uh, wow. to run our USA Engage program, as you mentioned. Uh, and I've been there for 18 years. Um, so I've uh, had a number of opportunities to grow. Uh, I've, As you mentioned, I founded the Global Innovation Forum, which engages small businesses uh, in conversations about how uh, they're going global and participating in the global marketplace. 
Uh, and then uh, it was grateful to have been named president two years ago. And so, um, you know, these days I'm, I get to spend some of my time, at least, uh, thinking about the future strategic direction for NFTC um, and uh, and growing the organization. It's it, it's been fun. It's been challenging, um, and I'm I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. Fantastic. Um, but that means, if I'm following the timeline, that you were uh, at the National Foreign Trade Council throughout the uh, renegotiation of NAFTA or the negotiation of the USMCA. I guess we should say, and we're in several years in a little a little bit more than three years into the USMCA now. How do you assess the current trade relationship between Canada and the US um, in light of all of that? Are we are we in good shape or still some concerns? Well, I mean, if, if you think back uh, to, you know, it was about 2018 uh, when President Trump was threatening to sign um, a bilateral trade agreement with Mexico uh, and leave Canada out, uh, perhaps as a negotiating tactic. But, um, you know, the relationship has... Uh, has absolutely had its ups and downs, uh, even lately. I would say right now, I, you know, I, I worry that um, the bilateral relationship between the United States and Canada is more fraught than it should be. Um, you know, we're we're each other's largest trading partners. Uh, we're generally like-minded. We generally have similar approaches to to regulation, um, and we're really close partners on national security and foreign policy. But you know, in addition to these sort of everyday bilateral frictions that are always there, um, you know, there's dairy and, and automobiles, there's always lumber. Um, I, you know, my worry is that we've been layering, layering on new frictions, um, particularly around uh, industrial policies and, and digital. Um, and so, uh, you know, as I look around, you know, we see Canada singling out American companies through uh, this, this idea of a digital services tax uh, and some other members like the, uh, this Online News Act and, and Online Streaming Act. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, from on our side, We've heard the criticisms of U.S. industrial policies uh, not taking into account the North American marketplace, um, which, you know, dates back to Build Back Better, which eventually uh, made its way in a different form in, into the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, I, right. You know, for me, the concern is that these frictions are sort of more pronounced uh, because we don't really seem to be united uh, enthusiastically around a positive or forward-looking trade agenda. Um, you know, Canada isn't part of this IPEF that the United States is pursuing. Uh, the United States certainly isn't banging down the door to get into CPTPP. Um, and you have forums where, you know, the our countries would normally take a leadership role, like the World Trade Organization and uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, uh, really sort of hamstrung by geopolitics. And so, you know, it's sort of hard to get anything done with China and Russia at the table. Well, for, uh, absolutely. Uh, they're they're certainly not uh, on our Christmas card list in either country. But uh, since you mentioned the DST, the digital services tax, um, how do you think that's uh, that's going to go forward? I mean, what are the specific concerns, I guess, that you have about it? it it's been much talked about, and I know it's, um, it's something that has me nervous uh, because it seems more like a, a manufactured dispute between Canada and the U.S. ready-made uh, than something that would be likely to go forward what's well, your that, view that that really is a concern that that i share you know and i think broadly it's it's just completely un, unnecessary and avoidable um as an irritant for the u.s canada relationship uh and you know if canada continues to pursue it i it, it's hard to see you know how it does anything but lead to more trade frictions with the united right States. you know at a time where i think we, we really ought to be aligned on trade broadly uh, but also on digital um mm-hmm. you know we, we've seen 
we have personally expressed concern and, and you know, other fellow trade associations uh, have done so as well. But, you know, Ambassador Tai and, and the, the U.S. Trade Representative's office have raised this repeatedly. And then you look to to our Congress and Senators Wyden and Crapo, who are the chair and ranking members of the Senate Finance Committee, um, have called Canada's DST targeted discriminatory taxation mm-hmm. um, that would need to be addressed as part of USMCA. Um, I know uh, Scotty's not here today, but, uh, you know, I saw the op-ed that, that she and Beth wrote, um, and I, I think she said something about Canada's go-it-alone approach um, that, that carries great risk. And, uh, you know, she asked the question, you know, do you really want to provoke the United States on this? And, and I, you know, I think she's right. Um, you're going to have businesses and government looking to explore every tool in the toolbox to express concern and, and push back on this from the United States. And that's frankly just not going to be good for anyone. No, absolutely. And it's um, it, it is a big concern for the Canada's relationship. Now, you, you also mentioned the Online News Act, which I think is C-18 in Canada. Um, can you explain a little bit uh, how that will would likely play out? And I know that Meta uh, and Google have been actually keeping Canada off the news feeds because of this this potential legislation. Um, but but why are people so stressed about it? What's your sense? Yeah. So, look, I mean, I'm not sure I have a crystal ball here for either the Online News Act or the Online Streaming Act, but uh, which I guess is what, C-11? I think so, yes. <laughs> yep. Um, but Producer but, says yes. Okay. Uh, but, you know, in in both cases, you know, the concern is that um, it's really targeting a, a very small a range of U.S. Uh, digital companies here. And, um, you know, in, in the case of the Online News Act, it would require them to essentially pay to, you know, uh, link to news articles uh, or to otherwise displace snippets um, and, and news stories. Um, it, you know, the internet is built on linking to things, and and so uh, you know, there's a fundamental concern that this kind of action just undermines uh, the the very nature of an open global internet. Uh, but it also, more specifically, raises uh, national treatment and performance requirement concerns. Under yes. the USMCA, um, which could also be said of the Online uh, Streaming Act, and so um, I, you know, I think on the Online Streaming Act, uh, you know, that could also have implications for content production uh, and distribution globally, uh, and the ability of American uh, you know content creators to uh, to succeed and thrive on on platforms uh, available to to Canadians. Um, I think the Online News Act is front and center because, as you mentioned, Meta has already restricted. Uh, you know, access to to links to Canadian users for for news articles, um, and so it's you know both of those issues are are a concern. But you know, I think they play into a larger concern about a kind of Canada turning fire on you know its closest ally rather than um, the two of our countries being joined at the hip uh, on, on digital policy. It's funny because I, over the years, I've gotten to know some of the reporters who you know are out in Washington covering various beats, and so many of them are Canadian. So they're they're coming down to the U.S. They're they're able to engage freely and openly in the media. Their careers are prospered. That's it's that openness which has tended to work in both directions, um, creating opportunities for both sides. It seems it seems a shame to sort of put news media in the same basket as, say, Canadian culture, where you take a very restrictive approach. 
But even on film, Canada's always said Hollywood films, American productions are allowed uh, on screens in Canada. They've just said, hey, we want to put a little support behind Canadian film so that our voice is heard. And maybe a subsidy or support role I don't think would be as controversial, but to try to restrict access or, or tax does seem to me to be a little bit more, maybe that's too harsh a term, but protectionist. Uh, you yeah, know, and, and I think it's frustrating because, uh, you know, I think sometimes politicians sort of confuse who they're competing with or against. Um, and, and usually for me, this frustration surfaces with respect to the European Union, um, you know, whose policies, you know, tend to suggest that their biggest strategic competitor is the United States rather than China. Um, but, I, you know, I think it, it seems so obvious that, uh, you know, we should be building a North American innovation corridor and making sure that uh, American and Canadian small businesses have access uh, and, and understand how to use the digital tools that they need uh, to engage effectively in the global marketplace. Um, and the idea that instead we're going to be fighting about, you know, Canada's digital policies just seems uh, demoralizing. It is demoralizing, at least at some level. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, uh, we'll be asking Jake Colvin a little bit about the global agenda. What did Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in DC focused on this vital relationship. So in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. This is Chris Sands, and I'm having a conversation today without Scotty, much, much, much missed, with Jake Colvin, uh, president of the National Foreign Trade Council. Um, what we were talking about some of the the relationships on the digital economy, some of the issues that have arisen uh, before the break. But I know you were also thinking about some of the positive elements of the bilateral relationship in this sector. Well, thank you, Christopher. And and I, I didn't want to leave it on such a dismal note. You know, I, I think, um, you know, if you look back just even to a couple of years ago about the lessons that we learned from the pandemic, uh, in the United States, three out of four small businesses increased their use of digital tools in response. And I came across another survey by a Canadian firm that found that 55% um, of small businesses in Canada who had an existing online presence uh, saw their sales either rise or stay the same during the pandemic. And so, uh, you know, I think one lesson coming out of the pandemic is that digital tools are a lifeline for small businesses. Um, so I, I actually had um, the opportunity to, to spend a really incredible week with my family in the Canadian Rockies over the summer. Uh, and when I was in Banff, uh, I met uh, a woman named Gail Holton, who founded the uh, the Rocky Mountain Flannel Company. And oh, wow. so we had a great conversation. Um, she was remarkably well-versed on Canada's trade policy and all of their free trade agreements. Um, and, you know, I went and looked her up afterwards, and, and she uses digital platforms, including Facebook, Instagram, Shopify, PayPal, FedEx, uh, to connect with customers all over the world, as well as her suppliers. You know, she she sources most of her flannels from Portugal. Um, and so, you know, small businesses, I think, get the importance of, of digital and of being digital and global intuitively, uh, even, you know, those who are not as well-versed as Gail on, on trade policy. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, I just I think there's this it's not even an opportunity. It's, it's sort of a necessity of making sure that uh, the United States and Canada are aligned on, on digital and making sure that 
uh, those small businesses in in our market in our countries uh, are able to um, you know use those tools effectively to to go get up global markets. One of the things that I think is most promising in the USMCA was the discussion about inclusive trade, which I think at first people were wondering, you know, who who needs to be included? How does it go? But as the governments have interpreted it, trying to bring more people in trade, they focused on SMEs, which are uh, more likely to be headed by by women or uh, racialized minorities, others who are participating, really just getting a business started. And so the idea of helping small and medium-sized enterprises to participate in bilateral trade is very much part of that agenda. So if we can, if, if we get the digital economy right, it, it it's a it's a positive step for inclusion, I would say. Well, and that's that's exactly right. And I, um, there's uh, evidence that suggests in the United States experience that uh, women-owned and minority-owned small businesses who engage in the global marketplace uh, are more productive, pay higher wages, um, have more longevity uh, than businesses that don't. Um, and so I, this is one area where I, I do think that the United States and Canada um, you know, really could be doing uh, even more to cooperate. Uh, you know, Canada's been a leader on um, including uh, gender uh, commitments in trade agreements. Um, and I, I think, you know, to the extent that we can get back to a, a positive trade agenda uh, where the United States and Canada are, are really in the driver's seat, there's uh, there's much more that we can do together to make sure that, um, you, you know, we, uh, we reflect the importance of supporting uh, women and underserved communities um, through our trade policies. And I'm glad you mentioned underserved communities because I know a priority for the Canadian government has been opening up to Indigenous communities in Canada, often in remote areas for whom the digital uh, connection is the lifeline to to the much bigger markets the, that are around them. So uh, very much, I think, something Canadians innovated on. And I think I'm glad, well, I'm glad it's in the USMCA. Well, and it's uh, it, it, we've done some work on this through the global innovator through our global innovation forum, uh, where we've gone out and interviewed some uh, indigenous uh, small businesses. Um, we did this for a, a report through the Asia Pacific Economic Cooperation Forum, um, and it's it really is um, a way for digital tools um, help uh, communities um, diversify and and um, you know sell their products to a, a broader audience. In some cases, it's a, it's a lifeline. Uh, we had, we interviewed another small business in Mexico, who said that uh, you know she both you know didn't feel safe walking down the street, and um, you know when she went to meetings with investors was um, was was met with skepticism in Mexico. And so you know as she developed more of a global online presence, um, she was able to um, kind of provide proof uh, of the success of her business um, and and get credibility that way. Where um, you know for one reason or another. She uh, she lacked it. Um, she wasn't able to to get that credibility or visibility um, locally. Oh, that's a great story. I, I don't want to be too parochial in talking about North America because I know you, you're about all of the foreign trade. I, I wonder, you know, can Canada and the U.S. form some kind of common cause or work together? Uh, globally, we've got forums like the WTO, which, you know, is stuck. We we don't have enough appellate uh, body judges. Um, Alan Wolf, our former ambassador to the WTO, has been talking about F gestures of reform lately. And you have APEC. Uh, we're coming up on an APEC summit, I think, uh, later this year, uh, where Canada and the U.S. are in the same club. Um, can we work to make those clubs better and, and perhaps... Um, strike a blow for global trade, global open trade uh, together rather than fighting bilaterally. 
So I, I think despite the geopolitical challenges, um, it, it's really important for the United States and Canada to uh, to show leadership um, and position you know, venues like the World Trade Organization and APEC as uh, you know opportunities to address shared global priorities. Um, you know, if we don't do that, then you know countries will go in other directions. And you saw that uh, a short time ago with uh, the the RCEP, the trade agreement that uh, that China helped lead uh, without the right. United States in uh, the Asia Pacific. Uh, and now you have the expansion of the BRICS. Um, and so you have these attempts to create alternative power centers um, among groups of countries that are certainly not friends of the United States uh, or perhaps Canada. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I just, uh, you know, I get the challenges, um, but if you look at even during the pandemic, I thought the WTO was valuable um, as a forum to discuss lessons learned for trade and health. Uh, Canada has played a, a really important role in leading uh, this so-called Ottawa Group's work, um, and the Ottawa Group did a lot um, to surface uh, ideas and proposals on um, trade and health during the pandemic. Uh, you know, the WTO has this uh, committee on trade facilitation that they set up, uh, which discussed best practices, um, which allowed medicines and critical goods to get where they needed to be during the pandemic. Um, and so it, the WTO did prove, I think it's worth um, as as a, a forum to discuss these issues that were you know happening in real time. Um, one other venue that I would point out, which sometimes gets overlooked, is the OECD, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Oh, right. You know, to me, that's an increasingly important place where uh, the United States and Canada can show joint leadership and, ma and make progress. So um, it's a forum that does not include Russia or China. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, they've historically done really good work uh, in analysis on digital trade, on trade facilitation. They're engaged in, uh, you know, a number of science and technology issues, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, and now you have a group of countries knocking on the door uh, to try to join. And so Brazil uh, and I think four other countries have begun, uh, you know, the accession process. And during that process, it provides an opportunity to sort of kick the tires on their policies and make sure that, um, you know, Brazil is following best practices with respect uh, to trade and tax policy. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, to me, that's, that's an important place for, uh, for business to be because it's an opportunity to have a, a really robust conversation uh, among like-minded countries and, and those who would like to join the club. Well, and it, it's a more inclusive club in in the sense that it, it doesn't include China and Russia, but it does include uh, Mexico. It includes uh, Japan, uh, South Korea. So it, it's a bit more global in that sense. It's It's got some very, very good economic partners for the United States and Canada in it at the table, even though we sometimes say, well, some of these countries belong in the global south or they're in the IPEF territory, we've already included them and have a platform for dialogue, uh, which is something I think both U.S. and Canada would would prize at this time. Yeah, completely agree. Now, you mentioned AI, and I want to talk a little bit about sort of the, the cutting edge issues in trade. Um, you mentioned softwood lumber earlier. That's an oldie but a goodie. But there are some new issues coming up, uh, AI and so forth. Where do you think we uh, we could be working together on global trade uh, to, to maybe build a sort of Canada-US uh, tag team position to try to advance some rules? Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned uh, lumber and, uh, you know, whether it's it's lumber or, um, you know, rice or, or automobiles, there are a number of uh, issues where it feels like Groundhog Day. Um, yes. And so, you know, I think with respect to 
uh, AI, as well as other emerging technologies like blockchain, uh, advanced cloud services, uh, fintech. Um, these are exciting areas to, to do some fresh thinking uh, from a trade policy perspective. Uh, you know, policymakers are, are grappling with how to regulate these technologies. And so, uh, you know, you have the United States and, and EU and, and Canada and, and others all taking different approaches to, to things like regulation of, of artificial intelligence. Um, but then you also have countries starting to think through how to cooperate and even write these um, these issues into to trade agreements. So you have the uh, Digital Economy Partnership Act that uh, New Zealand, Singapore, and, and Chile have uh, have signed, where um, they start talking about um, fin developing fintech sandboxes among the members um, and about um, sharing information and, and cooperation on artificial intelligence. Um, through the U.S. and EU uh, Trade and Technology Council, uh, they've uh, they're establishing this code of conduct on AI. Uh, and so, you know, I think it's it, it's exciting to start thinking about uh, the idea of regulating domestically and cooperating globally at the same time. And, and you know, where should business be um, as as we advocate for um, for our priorities? Uh, I would also note that, um, you know, AI and some of these other advanced technologies are also um, increasingly being thought of from a national security context. And so if you look at AI in, in particular, uh, this is classified as an emerging as an emerging technology uh, that will be controlled for national security purposes. Uh, you know, for in the United States, uh, we denied access to tools to train large AI models uh, as part of uh, the rationale for U.S. export controls on advanced computers and chips. Uh, and I know Secretary Raimondo just came back from China, and you know she talked about the idea of uh, erring on the side of caution. Uh, when it comes to limiting China's access to advanced AI tools. I mean, this is an emerging space and uh, there's still sort of a lot of unknown. And so I, I think there is a desire to be cautious. Well, and, and probably that's prudent. Um, uh, one other area that I, I think Canada and the U.S. have been talking about, particularly since COVID, are supply chains. And whether it's uh, trying to keep bad things out of the supply chain, like forced labor or... Uh, measuring the carbon impact of a supply chain or looking at supply chain resilience, maybe the impact of additive manufacturing uh, to make up some parts so that you don't extend your supply chain just for low cost, you know, to one side of the world, or the other. How can uh, what 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 makes sense for the agenda on supply chains between the two countries? Are there some things that we need to to address more urgently? Uh, maybe some topics to include for a future Canusa Street podcast episode even. Uh, yeah, so look, I mean, I think it's important for uh, the United States and Canada, as, as well as all like-minded countries, to collaborate on shared uh, challenges with respect to uh, supply chains, particularly including forced labor, uh, but also, you know, any counterfeit efforts. Um, you know, I think the the challenge is that um, over the past several years, there's been an increasing um, burden placed on businesses to just, you know, root out. Uh, counterfeits and forced labor from your from their supply chains. Um, I do think that um, there is an opportunity going back to the the last question of um, utilizing emerging technologies like AI and blockchain to help with um, some of the challenges with supply chains. And so, uh, you know, if you're looking, I know the United States and Canada are both taking a fresh look at customs modernization procedures and data requirements for entry. 
Um, and then, you know, to address the challenges of forced labor, or even, as you said, Christopher, measuring the, the carbon footprint, um, there is a, a promise, at least, or a hope that um, new technology tools could provide um, more certainty and, and more seamless access to data that would facilitate, um, you know, meeting some of those challenges. So, you know, if you if you think about some of the use cases in trade for blockchain or AI, uh, you know, they include, uh, you know, uh, certifying the origin of goods, uh, making sure that, you know, products were not made with forced labor. And so to me, that's another sort of exciting uh, prospect for uh, the, the use of emerging technologies for trade. Jake Colin, I have to say that uh, there's a pattern here, which is that while you're realist about the challenges, as you were about digital economy and, and about supply chains, you always end on a positive, optimistic note, uh, which may be your personality, but I think it's it's refreshing. Are you, as as we come to the end, uh, this idea of Canada-U.S. trade that we started with, um, there's a lot we can do bilaterally in this trade relationship and a lot still to be done. Would you agree? Uh, well, look, if, if you only focus on the negative, it would be hard to get out of bed in the morning. Um, I, I will say that um, one of the, the best parts of my job over the past 18 years has been engaging with startups and small businesses um, who talk about uh, how they uh, engage in the global economy, but also about how they founded their businesses. And so, you know, I've had uh, the opportunity to work with uh, Startup Canada and, you know, do a roundtable event in, in Ottawa where we got to know a, a number of, of uh, Canadian small businesses. And it's just, uh, you know, that that optimism um, is is sort of generated over and over again. And, and that's part of what, uh, what keeps me going on those days where um, things look a little bit bleak. I, I appreciate that. Uh, Canusa Street, it's always sunny on both sides of the street. So we're, uh, we appreciate the optimism. Jake Colvin, president of the National Foreign Trade Council. Thanks for coming on Canusa Street. I'm sorry I didn't have Scotty for you, but, uh, but you're welcome back anytime. I good to be with you, Christopher. Thank you. All right. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.